Welcome to the Directing Animation Livecast with Scott Weiser, currently near a crossroads. Will I continue directing at Space Station Animation, which I'm absolutely loving? Will one of my 10 feature film pitches get the green light, which has already happened many times? Or will both of these dreams collide? Wherever the road may lead, I remain committed to mastering the art of telling deeply meaningful stories. Today, our guest is Stephen Candell, who is what they call a character TD, which in in his case, like he can rig characters, which is building the model that the animators use to move the, the characters around. But he can also model, which is really, really a great skill set. He's worked on films such as P- Puss in Boots, Cloudy for the Chance of Meatballs, Rise of the Guardians, I think DreamWorks, Dragons... How to Train Your Dragon. Um, Did you work on Kung Fu Panda? Kung Fu Panda, yes. Yeah, okay. I didn't see that on the IMDb, but I know that I'd seen a rig in your your reel from Kung Fu Panda. And then you've also started Studio Zubia, which is creating high-quality characters for many different clients in the animation industry. And your your rigs are a cut above the rest. They're just really amazing, looking appealing. And uh, I haven't really gotten to play with the controls, but I imagine those work really well, too. So anything that I left out? No. (laughs) <laughs> that's me that you, you summed me up in in, in 20 seconds perfectly <laughs> <laughs> very very nice yeah and before so rigging traditionally you have various different platforms that you've worked with i'm sure you've worked with maya which is probably mm-hmm. the current um yes. workflow and then you used was it primo was it that the software that you were using now at? primo um i did help develop primo um primo is the animation tool is proprietary at dreamworks animation Exactly, and exactly. as that came out for How to Train Your Dragon Two, which was the premier film to debut that new animation tool, which mm-hmm. is extremely awesome, we had to completely recalibrate and recreate all of our rigging technology to be supported on that new platform. So um, we used an older, dilapidated tool to do the rigging, but then it was all built for Primo, which was so the animators got to enjoy the new software more than we did. But we had to make <laughs> sure that our rigs were also built for Primo and and allowed the animators to have just a higher level experience with interacting with characters, a more direct experience, a more um, fluid experience when when animating. So Yeah, did you work a lot with Rex Grignon in that process or Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. Rex and I um, especially he was he was kind of an early on consultant on on Primo for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, and he kind of filled the same role. Yeah, he and I partnered with there was a number of animators that kind of got their hands in that and kind of influenced the direction of what Primo looked like. But yeah, Jason Reisick and Fred Nilsson for sure as well. But yeah, he's awesome. He was a mentor of mine for quite a while. Oh, is that right? And we were working on getting me in the studio, but then he left and created Nimble Collective, which was purchased by Amazon. Amazon, exactly. Exactly. I've been to to Nimble at their little studio in uh, Mountain View. And um, when I was at Google, I, I popped in their office a few times. Him and Jason Schleifer. Yeah, he's amazing as well. They they the mentored my film layers. So oh, nice. yeah, from from the very beginning of it, it was it was really great to get to know them. And I'd never actually visited their studio. I've only met with them online. But yeah, yeah. really really great people. So tell me about Studio Zubio. Like, oh, man, how did this thing develop? Okay. I know it's uh-huh. really intense right now. You're you're still in startup mode, but you're creating some great stuff. So I'm growing really fast. Well, are we in startup mode? That's the question. Um, we're fully financed <laughs> by ourselves. We are completely independent as far as our, our business model goes in that we make the money that we spend, which is wise. different than most startups. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Most startups start out with a large amount of capital. So um, that's something I'm very proud of is that we've managed to launch the studio 
um, being in in the in the black from the get go and are able to take on the right kind of clients and the right kind of work and um, deliver over expectation on everything and under budget. So it's been great. So yeah, I started Studio Zubio. <laughs> how do I have to, man, I need to be careful how I say this due to legal reasons, I guess. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, just kidding. I'm kidding. No, I was, I was an employee at Google at the time when I actually um, went to uh, GoDaddy and, 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 and bought the domain Studio Zubio. Why did I call it Studio Zubio? I do not know, except for the fact that I liked how it sounded. Yeah. And I didn't hate the name. And that's a big thing for me because I'm very critical of naming and naming conventions and how phonetically things sound. And for me, I like the way it looked, you know, and, and I like the way it sounded. And it's, I said, you know what, let's, I'm going to commit. Let's do this. When I was at Google, I worked after DreamWorks, I went to uh, Google for almost three years and I was super commuting back and forth from Salt Lake City to um, Mountain View, California, San Francisco. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Every week, back and forth, back yeah. and forth. Every Monday morning, I'd catch the early 6 a.m. flight to um, San Francisco. And then every Thursday afternoon after work, I'd, I'd fly home and then I'd work from home on Fridays. I did this for many years. And the first year I did it, this is all going to pre- preamble to Studio Zubio. Okay. The first year I did this at Google, I um, I actually just did Airbnbs. And then after a year I was there, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to buy a van and I'm going to do the van life thing. So I bought a camper van and I parked it in Google's parking lot and I lived on Google campus for two years, like the, the resident hobo, one of many people that did this, by the way, <laughs> yeah, I'd rather, yeah. I'd rather do that by a $10,000 van versus spending 30 or $40,000 worth of Airbnbs every year. Cause that is the most expensive market for Airbnbs in the country is, is the, uh, the Bay area. Gotcha. So anyway, yeah. So when I was working at Google, um, I really learned a lot about real-time animation, real-time rigging. I'd never really done a lot of that before at DreamWorks and at Sony, even though at DreamWorks, I did do a lot of, um, you know, like the animators actually animated in real time. So I did do a lot of um, benchmarking on my rigs to make sure that they were efficient. And our whole team did our our character TD team at DreamWorks was very passionate about making sure our rigs were proficient and efficient and economical when it came to frames per second. So the, the playback, the playback, sorry, the playback speed for animators was fluid. But at Google, I had never done it before. And also the role that they wanted me for was a bit of an art director, technical art director in, in the more classical sense, in that they wanted me to help kind of curate the art direction of what Google's doing in certain projects and also create and be a little bit more receptive to what the engineers expect for their projects as well. So making sure that the content that we can deliver is also compatible works and works with the engineering team, which again, mimics a lot of my experience at DreamWorks as well, which was when I was partnering with um, a lot of engineers. So at Google, um, I, I saw just a, a, a new market of business that I'd never really seen before because I was from the film industry and I saw a lot of um, interesting kind of projects pass by my desk and, and I got pulled into a lot of meetings to consult at Google. I was kind of like at this really interesting eagle's nest as far as like the viewpoint of what I could see is all these new kind of projects that actually exist in the world, oh, all animation content. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it in fields that I had zero experience in. And I found it very interesting and captivating. And I started to kind of think about which business models I found I found to be more um, more smart, more sound, sound yeah. business models. And more what studios seem to be compatible and more receptive to pick up um, the work from the tech industries, especially. And from there, that's where I, I started to kind of back, back of the napkin kind of formulate what my my team and what my studio I wanted it to do because after I left Google 
Um, you know, they pay pretty well, no secret. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, we paid off our humble little home here in, in Salt Lake County. And um, after that, I felt like I want to do something exciting and I want to do something that I can control and something that I can direct and drive. And that's what's that's where Studio Zubio came in. It's, it's a studio where I can do things the way I know that they should be done from my experience. And I don't really have to answer to anybody. I can really just kind of, for once in my life, you know, because I've been a, a, a small cog in a big machine. Yeah, yeah. For, you know, I had 20 years of experience being a small cog. And that was my moment. And I, I gained a lot of confidence from seeing a lot of other people run their own businesses and run their own studios and companies and teams. I saw how they did it and what worked for them and what didn't work for them. And I emulated what worked and I passionately uh, shoved out things that don't work in those formulas. And that's how Studio Zubio was formed, which is, yeah, we're like, like you summed up earlier, we create characters and character technology for, for clients. We do celebrity avatars for certain people. We okay. do, we do animation previs, uh, uh, as far as, um, previous development, like visual development, 3D visual development for film, for television series, for tech industry needs as well. Because of my my, my experience being a character TD at Sony and DreamWorks, I create a lot of um, rigs, obviously. It's not just the beautiful characters, it's also making them work. But yeah, oh, that's yeah. Studio Studio. Yeah, I don't know. That's what that's that's the core of our business. Yeah, that's the part that is the most fascinating to me. I think it's it's one of the parts of the animation pipeline that remains the most mysterious especially because with the with the rigor you have somebody who is very artistic but also very technically minded yeah. and that kind of an individual is rare there are several people that I, I i say all the time that if you want to get a job and you want to be hireable in the industry the job that's the most available is rigor you know rigor, rigor and tech artists yes. and tech artists yeah because of the amount of people going into it and the kind of person that needs to go into it and that sort of thing and yeah, I, I'm always blown away anytime I meet a rigger, just the way their mind works and the um, yeah. various skill sets they have, too. I found that out earlier in my in my career, right in the first year, like, you know, at Sony Pictures, when I got hired to work on the Polar Express, this is in 2003. Yeah. And I saw many, many talented lighters and animators come and go from the studio. I never, I saw a very few and a handful, you know, one or two or three or four character TDs ever leave the studio um, or get dismissed from the studio or, you know, get released or not, not heavily worked <laughs> job yeah. security. I totally agree. Job security for character TDs and rigors is, is extremely a sound. And it is, it gives you a lot of, it lets you work closely with modeling and animation. So you're in this really key, cool team. And if you can get on the development side where you're actually creating rigs that are designed to make the animation feel improved upon, Mm-hmm. Or to hit certain aesthetic styles that direct the directors wants. Yeah. That's where you're in that key, beautiful position where you're you're not just worrying about form, but you're also you get to be in control of function. Yeah, it's like you when you build a character, every frame has your fingerprints on it. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just because yeah. of the way that character morphs and moves around, and it's uh, it's so incredible what the work you do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's it's been a really fun career, and I and I love it. And I I have made so many good friends in this career, and I've worked with so many talented teams. Uh, you know, working at Sony on Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs that was um, that was Chris Miller and Phil Lord's first uh, animated film, um, and they're the team that 
I mean, they're the, they're the successful team and minds behind Spider-Verse and the Lego films. And mm-hmm. they bring that it factor to those films and that, that humor and that spontaneity. There's just been so many teams that I've been a part of that have um, helped me in my career and also just been good friends. You know, it's, it's been wonderful. So I feel very blessed. I entered the career, I entered this job market in this field right at the right time, right when 2D animation was on the, on the decline and VFX and animation were just launching. So there was just a lot of opportunity and it was a fun, exciting time to be in this field. Yeah. Earlier you said that uh, there are certain things in building characters that you don't want to do and certain things you definitely want to do. List those off for me. I'm fascinated to know. What did I say? Sometimes I don't even hear myself. What did I say? (laughs) (laughs) You said there's some things when it comes to creating a character that you do want to do and some things you don't want to do. There's a lot of techniques in rigging that have helped me a lot. And and, in regards to rigging, especially, that's kind of where I want to talk about is keep it simple, stupid is simple, is pretty much the the KISS method, right? Keep it simple, Mm -hmm. stupid. Yeah. I mean, um, don't over, don't over engineer rigs and don't um, try to overcomplicate simple solutions. Um, I've seen so many different people try to complicate simple things like tails, tail rigs. And yeah, it's like, no, seriously, this is not where you want to spend your time. Like you do not want to spend your time developing a lot of little subtlety motion systems and little complex bone interactions that aren't going to be perceived by the audience. And that's one of my biggest things is will this, you know, always ask yourself this, is this going to be appreciated by the audience? Yes or no. And most times it's a no. Most times it's going to be appreciated by an animator, one animator possibly. Yeah. <laughs> and only for a short amount of time. And I always say, you know, I've seen, <laughs> I, have, I have so many stories about this, but like I've seen the best rigs in the world utilized by a bad animator and the animation looks awful. And I've seen the worst rigs in the world utilized by an amazing animator and the, and the results look amazing. Yes, I've seen that too. Um, yeah, the, you know the talent really is in animation, and um, having an animator that knows how to. There's these are I know this is kind of unraveling, but this I do want to, I have a point here, and that that is like if you're an animator and you're listening to this podcast, you know you have the tools to make your work look awesome. Sometimes you do need to kick some notes back to the rig here and there for sure if things aren't just behaving in a normal fun- function. But there's no magic widget or magic kazoo that helps you and your shots look better and the and the animation feel more natural all it is is just you and your graph editor and timing and, and adding a lot of nuance to your performance and posing yeah and all that yeah. stuff i mean i saw you know i worked with james baxter he's one of the greatest animators in the world 2d animators and 3d animators what he could do with the simplest of controls on a rig was just amazing like i'm he and i worked closely together on on how to train your dragon 2 his <laughs> his uh he was the the lead animator on Valka on Hiccup's mother in the first film. And she had some model design issues on that film. And I totally. That James you know, Baxter guy is everywhere. James Baxter's <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. He's, uh, he's ever, he's got his hand in everything and he's the sweetest, most humble person you'd ever meet. He, but he, the, what he did, like, you know, he asked me in particular, he's like, Steve, you know, one thing I haven't ever been able to get in a 3d animated film is some subtlety with the necks on the films. And she has like this really long pronounced neck 
And I really want to get some sternocleidomastoid controls, some platysma controls in there. And I want to um, have, we've had that before at DreamWorks, but what I really want is something that allows to get some swallowing. Because, you know, the scene where like where a stoic comes into the yeah. ice cave and he sees his wife that he had thought was long lost dead for, for many years. Um, you look at her throat in that shot and it's amazing what he does. He really captures a lot of the subtlety of of what your throat does when you're in a high stress situation or in a high emotional situation. And especially for a woman having kind of a vulnerable, vulnerable neck really does make the performance feel like tangible and real. And the, the control I threw in there was simple. It was just this little, this little, little cluster wow. control that just dropped the, dropped the gullet slightly. And the way he uses it and the way he added subtle rotation and translations to it just made it feel like it was real. And that's my perfect example that I can say of, how to make a simple control that, again, getting it in the right hands and the right animator's hands really can make the difference, you know? That is awesome. I love that too. And I've seen it. I've definitely seen it. We had a, a person we brought on as an animator named Samuel Borland, and I could say his name because he's amazing. And he animated on our third episode, I believe, of the A for Adley show. And he he was just getting amazing things out of that rig. And like I told you beforehand, we don't have any blend shapes in the rig. It's all bone based um, because blend shapes in Unreal Four, at least we were we were just not getting. Yeah, there's there's real time performance issues. If you yeah, have, we weren't getting the performance issue or the performance we were wanting. So we would just go without blend shapes. But it seemed on his work that there were blend shapes. It was just it was extraordinary work. And yes. um, he ended up going to Disney to be a character TD. <laughs> so nice that's awesome it's kind of interesting yeah yeah so he was an animator or he was a rigger he's both oh he's both he does the whole thing yeah yeah gosh send him my way i want to meet this guy um Gladly. no yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of those um those those crazy cats out there that do animation and rigging jason schleifer being probably the most famous um, yes yeah when i was coming up again in the early 2000s jason was the he was the name like he I watched every video. I read every article. I read everything about. He was as much of a celebrity as you could be in in this industry. Yeah, in 3D animation, working at Weta. And then when I got went to DreamWorks, he had obviously left Weta and gone to DreamWorks. He and I became close friends and have been good friends ever since. And I had to I had to admit to him many times, like like look, dude, I'm gonna gush. I just love I love you, man. Like you really helped. Like he gave me the tools and the equipment to get into this industry and to make my own rigs at home in my own basement. Yeah, and he's just one of those people that I adore and. Yeah, he's he's amazing. There was an animator who started with me in my first animation job at Rhythm and Hughes, and mm. he had Jason Schleifer's book. <laughs> it was like this book has made it so I could be an animator. That's how yeah, much no, yeah. it's like the he hugged it. It's like it was a little security blanket well, that he brought into. Yeah, uh, it's, it's funny you say that because I bought I bought like his SIGGRAPH course because back then you had to buy like a course if you wanted the detailed tutorials. I bought it, gotcha. it cost me like eight hundred bucks. My wife's like, "This is back when we were poor." She's like, "What is this? <laughs> I need it. I need this." And I'm like, "I promise this will help me." I just need this. This is what I need to get done. And honestly, I was right. Like, and she can't complain because, you know, that was $800 well spent. Yes. <laughs> and very down to earth he is as well. I, my first time meeting him was at CTNX and um, it was before I had worked with Nimble Collective and stuff. So I just knew who he was, yeah. came up and asked him for feedback on my demo reel. And he just gave the most, you know, helpful feedback. He was positive. You know, my animation at the time needed a lot of work, but he didn't mm -hmm. really indicate that, you know, he was, well, he did, but it was more in the the stuff he was encouraging me to do with the reel. It's just it's funny that you uh, mentioned bone-based space rigs because that is what my cup of tea is. Well, I actually really enjoy making bone-based space rigs. Um, huh. I myself am a disciple of a core team at Sony Pictures Imageworks. There's a there's an individual there named Brian Thompson. He's one of the, the uh -huh. I think 
probably the greatest character rigger in the industry. And he's probably the most unsung in regards to his, his contribution at that company. He's been there for over 20 years. He's been there from early, like Stuart Little, um, you know, Spider-Man oh. and stuff. And wow. now he's still there. He's still there developing their technology for the Spider-Verse movies. And he's just amazing. And he taught me everything I know in regards to um, how to look at, and he, he'd deny all of this, by the way, he's that kind of person. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't teach you anything, but you know, he, he did in, in that he, he just taught me how to kind of unravel and uh, how to unwrap like a character and look, look at a character's face in particular as a machine, as opposed to as a, um, as a thing of flesh and blood, like how to look at the mechanics of lips, how to look at the mechanics of an eyeball yeah, um, and how to break those down into motion systems that I feel like I've improved upon as well in my own, in my own right. When I left, so yeah. he went to DreamWorks. I, I, I remember messaging him many times just with questions, but the, he's the one that prepped me and launched me into a career that allowed me to kind of excel as being one of the primary architects of the face rigging system at DreamWorks. Um, wow. Yeah, it was, he's, he's just phenomenal. At DreamWorks, when I went there, can I just start telling stories? Is that okay? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> at DreamWorks, um, when I, when I arrived, and this is in 2008, I want to say 2008, they were using, they were still using NURBS as their primary mesh um, in 2009. Imagine this. So in 2000, this is not that long ago. <laughs> they're using, they're using NURBS for all of their, you know, patches of geometry, like a quilt to make up their sculpts for Kung Fu Panda, for How to Train Your Dragon, all their films. They were still using patchwork on the faces and on the bodies. And we'd have to rig those patches and keep the and, and control and keep those seams closed as you're rigging it. It's crazy. So one of the one of the things I had to be a big disciple of is like, you know, A, the, the importance of working with poly polygons and how this can change our workflows and how it can speed up our time. And at DreamWorks at the time, their average budget for a face rig or a body rig was it was almost three months per character, three, three and a half to four months on a wow. hero character. Maybe a hero character could even take five months. It was, it was actually quite ludicrous and it was, I mean, and they knew it too. Like that's kind of why they had hired me, which was to kind of help kind of audit the systems and the workflows that were being developed in their system and, and to kind of bring away a, a kind of some a momentum from current th uh, third-party packages like Maya, current technologies, current workflows from, from Maya, because DreamWorks is an interesting company. And look at, you look at the history of it. DreamWorks was, you know, primarily 2D animation company. Uh -huh. In fact, not, not many people know this, but um, DreamWorks, like the, the core of their team is their animation team is European. Why is that? Do you know why? Not many people know this. I don't. Tell me. <laughs> so, Simon Otto, you know, being from Switzerland, um, you have you have James Baxter being from the UK. Mm -hmm. um, you have man, many Italians, many French, many Spani Spaniards, all in these key animation positions at DreamWorks. Yeah. And a few, few from... Um, Denmark as well. And that's still the case. You have a, uh, and the reason is, is that they all actually came up and learned animation and, and their first job was at Amblin Animation in Ireland or Scotland. I can't remember. Oh, I'm botching it. But anyway, so Steven Spielberg actually purchased that animation team and brought them to DreamWorks when DreamWorks formed, when Jeffrey Katzenberg formed DreamWorks. That's why you have this Euro animation team that worked on the Prince of Egypt in Glendale, California. You know, all of those guys yeah. were brought over all at the same time, all came up. You look at the, the list of animation names on Prince of Egypt, and it's primarily 85%, 80% European. And wow. What's it? Oh, yeah. And he purchases PDI, and mm -hmm. he, um, you know, they, that's where the technology, and PDI is not a, not a production company. PDI was a technology company. Yeah. Right? This, is, this is like a tech startup working on 
3D content, 3D commercials, 3D technologies in their own right. So you have this tech team in the Bay Area and this Euro animation team, creative team in, in, in California now. And those two things colliding and like the animators not having any experience with 3D and the technology team coming down and having all the experience in what 3D is, but not having any experience in third-party animation like Maya and other software. So you, you get this interesting bubble of information and experience that has a few blind spots. You have, again, the animators that weren't trained in 3D. That's one blind spot. Yeah. And also you have this technology team that doesn't have a lot of film production experience. That's another blind spot. And then you also have a tech team that doesn't have Maya experience or, or, or third-party large user-based software experience because they all use this proprietary thing that they developed from scratch. Mm-hmm. So this leads to a huge, a lot of blind spots in their production. And this has kind of started bumbling up. And that's why certain films, and so they started having different endeavors where like Over the Hedge was done in Maya because they wanted to see how, you know, what they could do at the <laughs> point of the team. Then you had Flushed Away in Maya, but then you had early DreamWorks, you know, Shrek 1, Shrek 2, and yeah. other films done in their proprietary software, Emo. That's interesting. And it's interesting. So then when they yeah. brought me in, I'm kind of this, this, this rogue renegade that's like, has experience in a different pipeline at Sony. Sony was kind of coming up at the time as far as the work that we were doing, which, you know, we did Surf's Up, we did Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. And sure, the box office wasn't there to necessarily match it, but a lot of the industry people knew that, wow, Sony has some, you know, these films look beautiful. Like these films have some technology that they're developing. Like they could sense that there was some value there. So that's why they kind of recruited heavily from our Sony team into DreamWorks. (laughs) So I came to DreamWorks with a few other people. As a, a DreamWorks at the time, there was just a, a lot of old workflows yeah, and yeah. kind of not uh, efficient workflows, but it were the only workflows that large, a large team of people from PDI knew. So they, they guarded those workflows and protected those workflows rather carefully as, as is, is rather natural and normal. You know, you know, you know, a trick, you get paid to do that trick. You want to make sure that trick is the trick that keeps going with the company, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So there's a little, it, it became a lot of political, um, a little bit of Game of Thrones going on there, like just as far as like, you know, work in the work in the system, work in the game, work in the people, and, and and soft and slowly introducing new ideas. And I learned quickly that I made a lot of enemies um, <laughs> just because I was so, you know, I was pointing out flaws in their system mm-hmm. and in their rigging tools and in their in their workflows. And as I'm pointing those out, and I'm paid to point those out, and they asked me to go in, and yeah, point those it's out, your job. It's my job. And in fact, they put me in onto a dev team to do this. But what I'm not realizing is I'm young and I'm kind of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, is that I'm I'm pointing out flaws in people's work that are sitting in my peers' work that are sitting there in the meeting. And that's why they're so dang defensive. Because at first I was like telling my wife when I came home from work, I'm like, man, this team's so defensive. I can't <laughs> I can't I can't talk freely about what you know things I'm seeing. Yeah. And I remember my wife's the one that kind of pointed out the fact for me because I'm a bit of a sociopath, probably, you could say. Um, <laughs> okay. is that, meaning that I, I don't read. I, I, I just miss the, the social cues in the situation slightly. Gotcha. Um, yeah. And it's, it's just like, well, it sounds like you're, you're, you're telling people that what they've done is wrong. And, that's, and, and, you're in this, and how you, you know, you can, if you do that, that's going to be a hard road. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be stressful. And so I had to kind of change my tactics slightly and, 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 and become a little bit more... Um, a little bit more patient and change my mental timetable of how, I, okay, I wanted to make change and I wanted to make positive change for the company. And I didn't want to 
do that alone. And I didn't want there to be a big body count behind me. So I had to really kind of just learn the, the art of negotiation and the art of, of compromise and the art of, you know, finding small wins as you go. And um, some days were worse than others. Some days were harder than others, but yeah. for the most part we got there. And I think the system that we developed together is stronger because of, you know, that, that challenging that we did and that, and that, and that rebuilding. Anyway, long story short. That's a great story, though. There was so much in there that my brain latched onto. Um, yeah. You know, that's it's interesting. You talk about negotiation and and leadership is something. I mean, yes. I I knew I, I should have known that being a director meant that you were doing a lot of leadership, but developing those skills has become imperative recently. You know, and yes. and a lot of people. I don't know why people view when I'm a director, I'm being the most creative which there is a lot of creativity involved and you do have to have a lot of those skill sets to be able to give feedback on different things, but it really is about leadership. And it's also about like when you give the message, how do you give it? How's that message landing? You know, is it really motivating them or is it demotivating them? Are you being too, like you can be too kind too, you know, to the point where some, some artists won't really listen to what you're saying. And so, yeah, it's, it takes a lot of back and forth and (laughs) yeah. And the other thing that my brain latched onto was very early on where you're talking about how this mentor at Sony, and I forgot his name, the unsung here, Brian Thompson. Hmm? Yeah. He taught you how to view the face as a more of a machine than a bunch of flesh, which is interesting to me because I've seen like your crude's reel of, um, this name Gronk, Gronk, uh, Greg. Yeah. It was a rig demo of him and it's so fleshy. (laughs) It is so fleshy. So how does, Thinking about it as a make, machine, make mm. it actually more fleshy. Right. That, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so uh, DreamWorks, uh, the, the best way I can sum it up is uh, DreamWorks, the term that I kind of uh, developed and coined was, I, I don't necessarily love the term, but uh, <laughs> was feature lines. So on a face, you think about the face as a bunch of feature lines that are important to keep as mechanical and not so fleshy. And those feature lines are like the uplid line. Yeah. And the low lid line, those are two obvious ones that form like a, you know, an oval. Yeah. But they're two separate lines. They're two separate lines that have to have a sharp point in the corners. And that sharp point sometimes needs to bow and round out, but sometimes for the most part, it can be pretty, you know, they're two separate individual things. Yeah. And then you also have um, supporting lines on top and bottom of that eyes. So you have the kind of the eye line below and below, you know, like kind of where the, 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 the eye mask, eye, pretty much. Eye mask, eye socket. It's, this yeah. is probably the most ambiguously termed area of the human face in animation. Every company has a different, different <laughs> term for this. Um, yeah. So you have like the eye mask area, and then you'll see obviously, and that's a top and bottom as well. And then you have your brows. Obviously, that's a pretty easy one. You that you can either treat that as one feature line or two individual feature lines. On your lips, you have your up mouth line, low mouth line, jaw line, and then your nasolabial line. And this is kind of on more human euphoid faces. So these are lines that you need to give animators a lot of particular control over and specific control over. And you need to give them different levels of control macro controls, which are larger ones that move the thing as kind of a whole in a really organic way, but also micro ones because any animator worth their salt is going to want to really fine tune any shapes in a rig. No mm-hmm. rig gives you perfect shapes. That's that's a rule. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you need these this level of fine level controls to kind of give you that little area to sculpt, almost like you're sculpting on the fly per shot, which happens all the time and on the best films. And some studios have large teams of people that do that kind of shot cleanup. 
Um, and it's not doesn't always all fall, fall on the hands of talented animators. It, it, there's a post cleanup team that does a lot of that kind of work as well. My yeah. point is, the fleshy stuff is really the stuff that I didn't mention, which is the nose, the upper cheeks, the cheeks in general, and the lips. Obviously, as well, I'll get into the lips in a little bit as well. Um, but the li- that's the area where you need to have a lot of gushiness, gushy, gushy, gushy. It doesn't matter if it's a skinny character or a fat character. Um, you, that's the area where you really need it to feel like it's reactive and it's really fun and pudgy. And typically to get that fleshiness, you do need to have some type of relaxant for a deformer on there, some kind of relaxer, some kind of Sony. We had one technique at DreamWorks. We had another at Maya right now in my workflows. I typically use Delta Mush to get that, but it's some, some method of, of a deformer that just adds a little bit of elasticity to these doughy areas of your rig. And um, that's what really makes a rig feel like a face feel flexible. Yeah. And on the feature lines, it's more in the animator's hands to make the feature lines feel doughy and feel a little bit more flowy. Cause you've, you've, you've introduced them this mechanical machine that can make the bones drive in certain ways and gives them scale controls and rotation controls. And, and you layer those controls in intelligent ways that gives them the most, uh, makes the most sense and is the most intuitive. And on those feature on those feature lines, like on the lips, like it's up to animators to. I'm sure you can like say like, oh, I developed this cool compression system that makes it so when the mouth comes in, the lips get extra chubby and doughy, and it feels really fleshy. But typically, that's the kind of stuff that's hand keyed, and it should be hand keyed because there's always exceptions to the rule on that stuff where you don't want that to happen. And depending on the film, especially if you do like Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, like that film had zero fleshiness, zero volume. Yeah. In fact, our um, Chris Miller and 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 Phil, their, their their mandate was okay. If you turned off the lights and you if you saw just your character in black, and then like I want to see the full facial performance with that with just black on the face, and I want I, I want to not be able to tell that the face is doing anything. That was the mandate. So like that's why I like the mouths are riding along the shell of the of the of the silhouette, and they're not changing the silhouette. They're just riding along it like it's a, like an egg, you know. Like yeah. They're just, they're just like the mouth's just kind of flowing and. They wanted it to always read because the the mandate was it was supposed to look like 1940s and 50s UPA cartoons, which are very silhouette strong and and not necessarily about the fleshiness or like the it's more about just getting strong silhouettes and not and um, not about making changing things and adding volume and, and giving a lot of uh, physical reason to how the face moves. That's awesome, though. I loved it. I just ate it up. <laughs> if there was a character, curiously, because I have a character like this in and my feature film that I've been pitching and developing um, that has really hard lines, like really etched Fizzled. features. Fizzled. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you still add fleshiness to that character or do you kind of leave them a little bit more stiff? You leave them more, you definitely, you leave those more stiff, certainly. Um, and that's where I was saying, like, it depends on the film and the look, but mm-hmm. for the, like for, for films like Kung Fu Panda and, um, the crudes um other films like you want that fleshiness there but on films that are intentionally like stoic the characters that are pretty thin and gaunt drago bloodfist comes to mind um yeah that's a great example he was he was one of my i think he's probably the third best rig i did at at dreamworks um i love his performances too he's so good yeah he was awesome and in fact i wish he was utilized again i wish they brought him back in the third film instead of the second film but i could i could talk about how to train your dragon 
all the time for eight hours, but whatever. But the Drago was the last rig I did, and it was the best one I did on the film. And this is using my tool set and my technology that I developed with with um, my, my few of my partners, Michael Hutchinson, uh, Daniel Dawson, and, and Dick Walsh. I was the lead character TD on the film, and you would have thought like, well, maybe my first character would have been the best, but no, you know, as as, as is everything, it takes it's like a pancake. That's what I always say with that's what I always say with rigging on any film is it's like you're making pancakes. The first the first two are gonna suck, and yeah. And you got to throw them, they're throwaways. So even at Sony, I, I did this, I, I had this huge mandate where that we should never be working on the hero character as the first character. And the studio hates that. They hate that. They don't want, no, the director wants, they want to see their main character. And me, I'm just like, trust me, let's just do this. Let's do one or two side characters first, get them out of the way. And then we'll get onto the, the, the character that's going to be on screen. Most that's so you know, wise though. That is so wise. Yes. Yeah. It is because you learn a lot on the first two and you don't have the budget typically to go back and to um, improve them. And it doesn't matter. It's not as it's not as heartbreaking to the film or as detrimental to the film if they don't look as good. Um, but anyway, yeah. the point was, um, you know, Drago having kind of gaunt cheeks and sharp lines as well. Um, he's a good design where he had the fleshiness, but he also had like those sharp features. He had the advantage of having, having very doughy lips as well which is why I think he's superior to other characters on the film, like Hiccup and Stoic. Hiccup, t- you know, it took a long time and to get to get right, and I still don't feel like I was so happy with him. But um, huh. Drago just having a lot of a lot of fleshy, chubby lips. And, get, you know, chubby lips are the key to a good animation performance. That's another one of my go-tos is, if you you know, my biggest pet peeves on, on 3D models for humans is that they make, modelers tend to make the lips a little too thin. And they can look thin on the outside, but you really want the thickness on the inside of the cheeks and the lips to be very chubby. And that's what gives the character a little bit. That's what gives them that. Like, it's like this social, like, you don't want it to look like paper. Like when they yeah, exactly. Mouth, you want that to look like it's like substantial and you want it to look like it's really has like some girth to it. Cause you're, it's the illusion of life here. Right. And yeah. the second you see paper thin lips, like your your mental cue to when you're looking at it is oh that that's this is an animated character this this is not real, but then you yeah. see those characters that have that you're like oh man what is this this is like some kind of some kind of simulation of a blood bag on a face that looks beautiful and it's like squishy and fleshy and um, but that's one of those cues that's one of those keys that gives you that fleshy performance. Wow, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that is such great information. I like how you just said wow. You're a great interviewer. Wow. <laughs> you made me feel good. I, mean, I feel like I'm dropping some good gems here. So that's You good. are, though. <laughs> All this stuff is just helping me so much. Like, just to... The the idea, again, of, of starting with the, the side characters, you know, on Barbie up at uh, Rainmaker, something that our director finally told Mattel, because they were always so picky about Barbie, and they were always harping on Barbie, and Barbie's got to be this, Barbie's got to be this, that, and then all of a sudden, they noticed that Barbie's friends were more appealing than her and they were like why are you getting these amazing performances out of her friends but not barbie like they're looking better than barbie and he's like it's because you you focused too much on her you got to the point where she was like this this freak of nature and no longer like the appealing character that you were wanting and there's Um, typically too much technology in the characters there's too many solutions that start competing with themselves because you've been given so many notes and everybody's so critical the riggers tend to start layering in solutions and then the solution starts conflict start conflicting 
And then when they get to their second or third character, they they really start to think about what worked and then they prune it down and make it even better. So uh, yeah. especially when you're working with new solutions, you should definitely not tackle the, the hero character first. And it was also it was also mentality too. Like the, the animators were given more leeway with those characters. There were less rules like forced right. upon us. Like, oh, you've got to make Barbie like this. And, less and pressure. I think part of her big problem was her upper lip was bigger than her lower lip. It was really hard to get. And I would actually go in and sculpt something that looked like a better lip. And then I'd be told to remove it. <laughs> wanna, and I'd be I like, this like, looks so much better. <laughs> that reminds me of a story. Can I tell, I'll tell another yeah, story? Yeah, sure. Tell us another story. So I'm very proud. Yeah, I worked in development on How to Train Your Dragon 2 for many years, for two years. And I worked as, a, as, the, as the character TV face lead for the film. And I was so proud of it. I was so happy. It, it represented more than just the film to me and to many others. It was just like, okay, this is us. You know, we're launching on new software. We're, we're, um, this was a huge monumental effort that needed tons of coordination and tons of development to bring about. I'm so proud of it. I'm so happy. I think the characters look pretty good. I'm, I'm happy with the improvements we made. I'm feeling pretty, you know, I'm, I got nominated for like a visual effects society award, a VES award. Wow. award. <laughs> um, yeah. Hiccup went up against, um, What's his name from Big Hero Six? We, it was a, we a hero, doing... Hamada, or no, no, not hero. The uh, the white guy, uh, the the, the uh, Callahan, robot. Callahan. No, the puff, no, no, the puffy, the puffy robot. Oh, his... Baymax, yeah, Baymax. <laughs> Thank you. The white guy. I said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not that kind. <laughs> he of was white. actually really Actual white. white. <laughs> I'm very literal. I'm very literal with my words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, no, we lost to Baymax for sure. But I'm feeling pretty. I'm feeling top of my game. Awesome. Feeling pretty proud, pretty you know, maybe slightly, uh, conf- you know, slightly uh, overly confident. Anyway, my wife and I go to the we go to the premiere of the film together, and um, we're walking out, and I'm just like, wasn't that great? She's like, yeah. She's like, what characters did you do again? And my now, okay, I'm gonna plant this right now. My wife's a dental hygienist, okay? okay. Okay. And this is like we're leaving the theater, like, and I'm feeling like confident as we get out. We're on our way to the party, like the the rap party, like the, mm-hmm. this is huge, big moment for me. And I'm like, oh, I worked on Hiccup, I worked on um, Gobber and Stoic and uh, Valka and Drago Bloodfist and all, mostly the main, the main humans of the film. She's like, you did Valka, huh? I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, what? She's like, nothing, nothing, nothing. I'm like, what? Her teeth? She's like, nothing. I'm like, Bryn, you need to tell me what, what? She's like, so she has six front teeth. <laughs> I'm like, what, what are you talking about? She's like, she has six front top teeth between her canines. I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> I started freaking out. I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, she has six front teeth. And I like, I'm like losing. I'm like, what? That can't be true. So I like, you know, the next Monday, this is like on a Friday night. I go, I rush into work. I bring up her model, whip open her mouth. Sure enough, she has six front teeth. <laughs> and not four. Oh, wow. So it took her about five seconds to realize that in the film. And she says, you know how she's, you said she was one of the most difficult characters to get look appealing. I'm like, yeah. She's like, it's it's because there was something wrong. And it's so true. Like I, I, I overlooked it. The directors overlooked it. The modeler, the model, you know, the modeling team overlooked it. Everybody overlooked it. And she yeah. ended up with six front teeth in front of her canines. And that's why she looks a little bit like an alien. I mean, in addition to the fact that she looks like an alien slightly. But. Yeah, that's so crazy. Wow. James Baxter didn't notice it. 
James Baxter didn't thank you. Yes, James Baxter, <laughs> lead character animator on the film, did not notice this either. He got a big chuckle out of it. And he's Simon legendary, Otto. so <laughs> so he's legendary. I mean, him and Simon Otto, like these are legends. It took a dental hygienist. <laughs> yeah, one I dental love hygienist. That, though. Oh man, she just took me down right to my right to my court, knocked me off yeah. my pedestal as fast as only as only a significant other can do. Yeah. Boom. You're back down to the junior league. That's why it's important to show your work to so many different people from so many different backgrounds, though, is because sometimes people are just going to see things you just don't see. And it's, yes. Yeah, it's very, very useful to know. So, our last question, and I've never asked a rigor this before. So, well, I guess, I guess Adam Sidwell, who owns Future House Studios, was on last time, but we talked less about rigging. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't and, think he doesn't rig. Um, the question is, it's the get wiser moment, and it's if my goal is to get the greatest concentration of truth into a film, what approach would you recommend? If your goal is to get the, the greatest concentration of truth in a film, what approach do I recommend? Yeah. That's a really broad question, and it's intentionally to be broad because there's 101 answers that are correct. Yes. <laughs> Subjective. Um, man, that's a good question. Well, I'm going to speak to it just from my expertise in, okay. in characters and making appealing characters. I um, love that. Yeah. That's so making a character true and feel like honest um, and feeling um, real, uh-huh. especially the animation is the goal. Man, that's a great one. It's it's to me, it's about, um, you know, I want to talk about story and there's so many other things I want to talk about, but I'm going to, I'm going to try to bring it towards character design and, and character functionality and facial rigging, especially. I think I'm going to say um, there's nothing that a rigger, the rigor won't make or break your, your film. Um, usually, you know, we're part of a team and we're a small part of a big team. And mm-hmm. to me, it's about working not on particular small solutions in a character. It's about thinking about the character as a big package. Uh, uh-huh, and, yeah. And thinking about it as this is this is my, this is not just my rig. This is someone else's model. Typically, this is. Uh, you know, I, we work with modelers and we, we fine tune the models. We do model changes. We've kickbacks, lots of kickbacks and forth. But my, my bottom line is to make it the truest and the most honest uh, performance. Um, it's about making it like the, as good as it can be and the greatest it can be. And the character, you know, always can be slightly better. But it's about getting it to the character designs and the character performance and the motion to a point where it doesn't become a distraction for the audience. Where they're like, we all have mental images on how faces move. And, and we all kind of know, you know, we all look at human faces all the time. Yeah. Um, it's something that we're all hypercritical of. And that's why the uncanny valley exists is because we all know exactly what to look for and what's normal and what's not. Yeah. And it's, to me, the answer is, or, you know, establish those relationships with your team that you can really be honest. And that instead of just kind of being a complainer on your team or, or kicking back things all the time, it's about like, how like we said earlier like leadership and just like being a good person and being honest and and yeah. trying to develop your relationships with your team which are going then going to once once all of the trust once the trust is there between the between the team members then you're going to start making the the work look better and you're going to start iterating faster and making knowing that everything can be better and it, and it can be improved upon but just just getting to that point where you trust each other and that you're in it together and it's it, it's the it's the collaboration of many people mm-hmm. and then that's where i think teams that have done that and workflows that have gotten to that point are what you know where the magic happens and i think there's not that many films 
in the history of animation, 3D animation in particular, that do that. Some just pop out as being more special than others. And yes, tools can replace some of that. But to me, it's like that's what makes it feel like the characters come popping off the screen and becoming, you know, the voice actually feels like it's coming out of the mouth of the character. And yeah. that's that's if the animator is doing what they can do. And animation is what what brings you know that's the illusion of life that's that's where the that's where you're winning your audience is with animation and you know modelers and riggers need to support their animation team and that's kind of yeah it's amazing how much your answer is going to tie in with my next guest too who's ed hooks (laughs) ed hooks wrote acting for animators and um, i read that book a couple months ago and i was just like i have to have this guy on the show and we ended up having these huge long email exchanges and it's all about the acting for him it's all about the realistic performance of the actor. And it's interesting, like he'll do these analysis on, on films and invariably he ends up t- touching on the story structure as well. Because the story structure gives the actor an opportunity to actually give an authentic performance where they have a real objective, a real conflict, a real, you know, real emotional performance. And uh, yeah, yeah, that makes, sense. that makes a lot of sense. You know, the project that I'm most excited about the studios would be us working on is we work on, we have our own virtual influencer named Mia who's this Southern California girl who is kind of just like this social media presence. And we are, we're all very passionate about her because she is starting to feel like a real person to many of us. And in that, you know, her personality is starting to pop as we start designing her. Like it's the first character that we own that we've put out there and that we're actually building a world around. And her whole goal is that, you know, everything in her life is actually fake because she's an animated character. And she, but she herself thinks she's real. And we all think, you know, the goal is to get people to think she's real and for yeah. her to behave like a normal person, behave like a, like an actual person and be as real as someone can be in social media, which is pretty fake anyway. So <laughs> I know my, my plug is that, you know, she's probably the most real thing on, on Instagram. And Oh, that's really cool. Um, I can't wait to see that. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she has a social media. Uh, she has, you know, she has about 10,000 followers right now. She's, uh, her name's, again, it's Vida de Mia. She's like a SoCal girl. Her, her um, she's kind of a mixed race family. She's, her mom's uh, from Mexico City. Her her dad's from the Bay Area. And she's, yeah, she grows up, up in California. And it's about her life, her career. As her, as she's in high school. She's a 17-year-old girl. Anyway, like, I feel very, feel very passionate about her because she's, like what, what we were talking about previously, which is like, how do we make her real? And how do we make her feel tangible and innocent and and reckless, just like every 17-year-old out there? You know? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. That so is so that. cool. I'm going to be going and checking that out right yeah, away. Vida, Vida de Mia. Life Vida of de Mia. Mia. And Mia is M-I-A. M-I-A. Yeah, Vida is life of. Vida de, Vida, Vida de Mia. So it's life of Mia. All right. Well, it has been such a great time here thank you for coming on the show and anybody who wants to follow steven's work there's links in the show notes he's steven gendale on instagram and you should probably go follow vita de mia too because it sounds amazing and uh, anyway until next time i hope we all get a little wiser thank you for watching the directing animation live cast hosted by scott weiser audio version edited by kira horowitz copyright scott weiser llc 2022